My guest today is Kaivan Shroth. He is a digital media strategist. He has been around progressive and democratic politics for some time now, and he has made a splash lately with some discussions that people have really been paying attention to about Nikki Haley. And I wanted to have him join us today so we could talk a little bit about his thoughts on Nikki Haley, his thoughts on 2024. He's a great communicator on a lot of fronts, and I know you're going to look forward to talking to him as much today as I am. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson. And this is The Enemies List. Kaivon, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So glad you could join us. So let's jump right in on the subject, as I said, that you've made a bit of a splash on the last few days. What is your take on the Nikki Haley entry into this into the Republican primary? Sure. So I think, you know, what I, what I started to do was really point out Nikki Haley's history. Um, and I think a lot of people have been going after her for uh, her name. She doesn't go by her given first name. But I think it's really part of a larger pattern and picture. We've seen other politicians go by a nickname or a middle name, but those same people haven't also changed their religion and hidden sort of the history of their background and family culture um, and then also those people haven't identified as white on a 2001 voter registration card, as we know Nikki Haley did. So it just shows a pattern, I think, of her sort of denying her background only to then at age 50 plus decide that she's going to center that in her presidential campaign and sort of discover this identity while also very ironically decrying identity politics. So that was the point of sort of a video I made that went viral and that I think you're sort of Yes, yes. Well, and I do think that's something that you know, look, America being the classic melting pot, America being the country where people change their names historically and they anglicize them a lot. And th this is not an unusual pattern in our, in our in our country in the past, but it seemed like that was kind of a thing of a bygone generation in a lot of ways. It seemed like something that would have happened in the late 19th century and early 20th century rather than the, the late 20th and early 21st. Absolutely. And I think what, what's more relevant is that Nikki Haley has used power to oppress brown and black community communities across the world. Um, and that really, I think, is more the relevant point about this is somebody who's not only denied their own cultural heritage um, throughout their career, but also used power to, you know, hurt those that she claims to be part of their community. So I think that was really the point of, you know, calling out that hypocrisy. I think in recent days, we've seen as people learn more and more about Nikki Haley, because I think she sort of did enter as this quote unquote moderate, they really see that she's an absolute extremist. She's not moderate at all. And um, frankly, you know, I think the more people learn, the more that's going to be the case. Oh, I, I think you, I think you just hit on something that's very important here. She's someone who, and I will give her credit. The the one thing she could have come out the gate on, and as a meritorious thing, was I was the one who dragged down the Confederate flag off the state buildings. She could have done that. She could have led with her, led with her. I, what I thought was a a meritorious decision. I said so at the time. I still think so today. But instead. You know, basically every interview has been, well, how are you different from Donald Trump? I'm not. How are you different from Donald Trump? I couldn't, I can't think of any ways. 
Well, exactly. I think she hasn't justified her candidacy, but even to the point on that one positive moment with the Confederate flag, right? I mean, she's also competing against these old videos now of her surfacing where she's both sidesing the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So you don't really get credit for that when, you know, we have you on tape basically appeasing these sort of absolute white supremacist extremists. And I think, you know, she's sort of in that interesting spot where a lot of what she did was as governor and sort of prior to that, um, wasn't really super captured in the digital era. It's not a ton of stuff on social media. There aren't a lot of sort of online articles about her past, but slowly people will be finding these sort of gems and it's going to really create an impact each time because it's going to come across as new information. There's a shocking amount of surprised by a lot of candidates who are like, oh my God, I didn't know somebody was going to find a videotape of me from 1997 saying this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, don't you think she should just like level it all out at this point? Like get ahead of it now? Because there's going to be more. I, I can't imagine when she was running in South Carolina, I mean, South Carolina is a red state today, but when she was running in South Carolina originally, it was as far out to the right as you could get. You know, I, I, I presume they're going to find more Right. And I think, you know, they're, they're going to find more. I mean, she's currently telling new lies, which is she's starting this campaign basically identifying as uh, the first minority woman governor in American history. She's not that, actually. Um, the governor of New Mexico, mm-hmm. Susana Martinez, know, was sworn yep. in before mm-hmm. her. So that's just a new lie that she's telling. So, you know, yes, she should address the old flip flops. And I think really her candidacy is defined by her history of flip flopping um, to the point where I don't think anyone's considering this person a serious contender for the nomination. You know, she might be vying for a cabinet position or vying to be VP. People have said, you know, maybe that's sexist. Uh, I don't think that's a sexist. I don't think it's at sexist all. at all. This I woman, think it's as you noted, you know. She can't name one reason she's running other than her kid has to deal with woke education. That's the answer she gave. I mean, that's right. not enough of a platform. Well, and and let's remember, her strategist, Nick Ayers, was Mike Pence's chief of staff. And he was Mike Pence's Sherpa in the 2016 campaign. So he, he may have sold her, hey, look, I can get you to the VP slot. Politics is a cynical business, as you well know and as I well know. But she seems to be spiking the cynicism meter at a level that... Even I'm a little like, come on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what she's, her case is that she's sort of able to win back this part of the Republican Party that Trump alienated, yet she hasn't offered one reason how she's going to do that because all she has done is double down on Trump positions and refuse to criticize Mm -hmm. Trump. So, you know, I think everyone in the GOP field has really shown that as much as maybe Trump is waning in the daily news, he still has a death grip on this party. They are all waiting each other out like chickens to, you know, be the first to criticize. They want to see how that's going to go. Who's going to take the first shot at Trump and what's going to happen to them? I mean, that's from, that shows you none of them are ready to be president of the United States. <laughs> I completely agree. So tell us a little bit more, more about your background. Absolutely. So um, I have my MBA from Yale where I was sort of working full time on the Clinton campaign while I was there um, and then recently wrapped up um, a law degree at Harvard Law School and a um, joint policy degree at the Kennedy School. Since then and kind of throughout all that have been really building um, an online 
activist presence where I try to, you know, filter. You did a recent episode, I know, on sort of the way that the media has really caused so much harm to our democracy. And my goal there online is to really interact with people without that middleman, kind of having real conversations and sharing messaging that I think really resonates with um, American voters who just want information that's, you know, kind of actually correct and doesn't have sort of these corporate frames on them. So that's really what a lot of the work I've been doing. That's terrific. And obviously you're a very, uh, you're, you're sort of a guy who takes it easy, doesn't like push for high achievement, Harvard, Yale, Kennedy School. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ratchet back the, the lens a little bit and get away from Nikki a little bit and talk a little bit about the 24 campaign because you're, you're, you're very fluent on the progressive side of the equation. And I know some progressives are like, eh, Joe Biden, I could take him or leave him. Where do you see the progressive world looking in the 24 race in two scenarios. Scenario one is it ends up being Donald Trump, which is, I think, the high likelihood he's got, as you said, the death grip on the party. Or scenario two, it's Nikki Haley. It's Ron DeSantis. It's but you know, lightning strikes and it's Mike Pence or somebody else. How do you how do you see how the progressive part of the, the Democratic Party is going to react, uh, especially vis-a-vis like the energy level for Joe Biden, who is, you know, Let's be real. He's almost certainly going to be the nominee unless something terrible happens. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, folks, there are always things people need to get off their chests. We carry around a lot of stress in this world. Some of it's big, some of it's small. But all of it, if we keep it bottled up, can affect our health in a negative way. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down, to learn how to deal with those stresses. I know so many people who've benefited so much from therapy. They find a safe place where they can talk about the challenges in their life, where they can learn positive coping skills, they can learn how to set boundaries, and they can learn how to assess what's happening in their world in a way that makes them that better version of themselves. Therapy isn't just for people who've been through trauma or suffered a loss. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Wilson today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Wilson. Right. You know, I think actually reflecting on 2024 and even 2022, one huge success of the Democratic Party is I do think that sort of post-2016 Bernie Hillary fracture that really was le- relitigated for year after year after year. I do think I'm seeing less of that. People are sort of coming all together. I think the Democratic Party is largely united. Um, yes, there are outliers who are suggesting replacing VP Harris, which I think is ridiculous. There's some people that, you know, do think Biden's too old. I think the one takeaway from that State of the Union, the, the key moment for him really was not anything he said. I mean, he said some great stuff, but that live moment where he was able to show his agility and go back and forth with Congress and command that room, because that debunks the number one argument against his 2024 candidacy. So I think that's what people were looking for. Um, There's new polling out showing, you know, he has more support than ever from the party. Um, And I think that's only going to continue to increase. Now, if Trump's the opponent, I think there's a much higher factor of that unity because he can certainly unite the opposition (laughs) in a a unique way. But I think, you know, as the campaign drags out, you're going to see DeSantis or Haley or whoever it is try to get that MAGA vote. And they're not going to be able to do so without really rallying the Democratic base. And also this new sort of 
coalition that Biden helped put together of people that just want to preserve our democracy, just don't want to be hearing about, you know, the downfall of the world every single that's day right. in the news. That's, that's right. a big part of the population. I, I think that's right. And it, it is it is one of those things that I was concerned in 2020 that that when Bernie left, he would be cranky and not happy about it. But instead, he was a team player and got on board. And I do think that the, the ideas that, you know, you have to replace Biden, that moment in the State of the Union, yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you for making that because it just, it reminded me, you know, because Barack Obama in, in in his eight State of the Union addresses and Bill Clinton in his, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid came up each time. I can't remember, and I have a damn good memory. I can't remember a single time where they had a reaction like that from the press and the country and the Republican Party where they boxed whoever the Republican leadership was at that moment in a way that really hit. And the Republicans have been running around like chickens with their heads cut off since that thing happened, uh, since that State of the Union happened. And it is a strike. It's a really good observation. It's a striking kind of moment where he he had the the agility and the dexterity to go bap and spring the trap on him and look like i think this 2024 uh, election is also a great opportunity you know biden originally promised to be that bridge mm-hmm. he knew i'm an older candidate i'm a white guy i don't know that i'm necessarily exciting the majority of the democratic base but i can offer you a breather a break a return to normalcy and then we can go from there now would be a great time to couple that with showing the deep bench that Democrats will have in 2028, whether it's Governor Whitmer um, or, you know, a a whole bunch of great voices that we do have should be used in this campaign in a very effective way so that we are really showing the full breadth of the Democratic Party. Um, And I think I'm looking to see that. And I'm looking to see, frankly, Vice President Harris, who is actually she the skill set she offers is, you know, she can create great television if given the opportunity, because she has that prosecutor mm-hmm. skill set to have those back and forths. And when she was in the Senate, we saw that a lot of, at a lot of those hearings. You know, that's less of a skill set that's a vice president's right. going to be using. And so in a campaign mode, I think to, to put that front and center and be really thoughtful about using that is going to be powerful. You know, I think that's a good point. And I think there were a lot of people in D.C. that are like, oh, they're writing her off. It's like, oh, you know, Harris, she's not popular. Nobody likes her. But it, Let's remember Joe Biden picked her for a reason, because in one of the key debates of that of that entire year, she cleaned his clock and he knew it. He saw right. the talent there. Absolutely. And 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 I think and look, she's an inconsistent hitter, but in some ways she's an inconsistent hitter because they don't put her in the game. Well, and in fairness to everybody, right? Like that's the role of vice president. I mean, there would not have been seven seasons of Veep with each episode. The same premise is it's kind of a like not the best job because they all want to be president. Right. You kind of have to take a back seat. You get the shitty assignments, like weddings and funerals, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and what's happening to Vice President Harris is she does have that history making effect where there was all this excitement and coverage of you know what she accomplished. And then, yes, she is working in really a number two backseat role. So I think to some people, they see that as, you know, what happened to her? Where'd she go? And it's really not the right lens. Yeah, I think that. I think that. Look, I've been I I was skeptical at first um, because, again, I I saw her as somebody who is an occasional home run hitter. And and I've like in the last couple of months, I've come to think like I think it's just that she's not being deployed properly and and framed in properly for the right kind of assignments rather than 
you know, a lack of talent. I think she's got the talent. I just don't think she's being put out there in the right venues and opportunities. Although I will say this, I don't know if you saw her in, in Munich this week with the security conference. I thought she was terrific. I thought she was terrific. And, and absolutely. And the funny thing is you could have heard that, that sort of lie, that sort of strong national defense uh, and strong foreign policy position line out of anybody in a Republican administration in the past where they used to claim that they were the national security party because she was holding a very hard line against Russia and Putin. And I thought she did it very well. I mean, I, I do think, like I said, I, I've come to believe she's an un, underutilized asset. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just think of that VP puzzle, though, again, like who are the vice presidents that people do remember? You know, to me, it's Dan Quayle for a bad reason. Joe Biden, of course. And he had that sort of one viral moment where he sort of uh, departed from the Biden administration on gay marriage. I have to tell you, the administration was not happy about that at the time. Right. So the fact that Harris hasn't had a moment like that is really to her credit, I think, because she hasn't embarrassed the administration. She hasn't sort of had a one-off, you know, episode that people are going to remember forever. So, you know, really that's a success. Well, and I, I mean, obviously this, this election is, uh, you, you correctly pointed out, you know, Biden is, in a, is somewhat of a transitional figure. He's somewhat of a bridge figure. Um, he knew it. We all knew it. And in a way, I think that was one of the most compelling arguments for him in 2020 was we're not trying to settle all the Democratic Party's family business this year. We're not trying to come to a final conclusion of what the next 50 or 100 years looks like. We're trying to get past this terrible, devastating crisis. We're trying to get past this immediate danger to the, to the republic and to, to our democratic system of government. And so Biden was like that pathway to that bridge. I think this campaign has got a lot of opportunities, though, because Biden is unusually – it's strange. that He's getting an unusual amount of lift now with even younger voters, and they're starting to sort of appreciate the the slightly quirky – vibe that the guy, I mean, he's, he's giving this, uh, I, I think he's giving Gen Z an opportunity to like him. Absolutely. And I think the, the way he's done it is he's picked some really strategic fights mm-hmm. on marijuana, mm-hmm. on student debt. And these are not necessarily fights that, um, you know, are going to be won in major ways. But I think especially on the debt fight, people were happy to just see the shot taken. And that's all Gen Z is asking for. They're saying, don't keep telling us no. You haven't done it this way. You keep saying we got to work within the system. Fight these big fights for us. And yeah, if we lose, I mean, we're already in the same position as, we, as we've begun with. Um, so I think people appreciate seeing that fight. And then also, I think, you know, Gen Z's gotten a little reality check, as, as has the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, I think just like we started the conversation, there isn't that sort of divide in the Democratic Party, because I think a lot of people have sort of hopefully learned the lessons of 2016, which is really the whole country is at stake. And so don't divide the party on impossible promises that nobody can accomplish. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's something that uh, when I was a Republican, we used to see it in focus groups. You know, Democrats would say things, we're going to replace your auto job and you're going to become a holistic solar panel installer. And nobody believed it. <laughs> it never happened. These 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 pissed off white 50-something former Democrats turned Republican, turned Trumpers in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, Kansas. They're mad because they felt like, you know, they did that, that, that and they, we tracked, let me, loop, let me tell you a quick story. We tracked this one set of voters in Michigan from way back in 2004. 
And in 2004, this one guy, he's like, I'm a Bush voter. I'm a national security voter. By 2008, he'd lost his job. His son was on his second deployment. He was pissed off. And he's like, I'm going to vote for Obama. He voted for Obama. He loved Obama the first term, hated him the second term. Voted for Trump in 16. Pissed off now. And when last we heard from this, this cohort of people we've been following now for almost a decade, this guy's pissed off. He's, he's oh, more than Beckett. He's pissed off. He's like, I don't have anybody who, who keep a promise to me. And I think what you just said was interesting. It's like Gen Z doesn't, and I want to say, I want to ask you more about that. Gen Z doesn't necessarily, you don't have to fan, necessarily land the plane. You just have to try. Right. I mean, I think especially in this moment where we've been told, right, this is how the Supreme Court works. You don't overturn precedent. This is how this part of the government works. You know, you can't do this. You can't break this rule. All of that has been thrown Mm -hmm. up in the air. Mm -hmm. So at a time when you're coming of age politically and all of that has been sort of, you know, reshuffled, why not take the big chances and the big shots? It's it's not compelling, right, to hear that, well, this isn't how it's done because we're already seeing deviations from, you know, important precedents and norms, you know, year after sure, year. Sure. Well, that that I think is is the, a very interesting takeaway from this conversation and I really appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Let's keep in touch. Um you, you do some you do Definitely. some great work, man. You really do and you you've got a good communication yeah. style. The premise of this podcast is is critical. So, I'm excited <laughs> to see who you keep having on. Well, it's a good time. Well, thank you very very much and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. I'm recording this on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I have a piece in Resolute Square that I hope you'll go and read at Resolute. It's called Today's GOP, Fetishizing Fascism. But I'm going to read it to you now because I think it's something that we should have in mind and talk about because this was a moment, we're going to look back on this as an inflection that really tested the world and tested America. And the last year has revealed something about my former party that I think is really important. So here we go. Joe Biden leveled up this week on the world stage. It's hard to rival such singular moments of high international political drama like Ronald Reagan's ringing call to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall, or John F. Kennedy boldly declaring Ich bin ein Berliner in the frigid depths of the Cold War. But there's something about confronting the Russian nay Soviet threat that brings out the best in presidents. President Joe Biden's visit to Kyiv, Ukraine, and his bold rallying of NATO and European allies this week was a high point in post-Cold War American foreign policy. He understood the stakes, the risks, the rhetoric, and the optics of the moment. For the first time in history, the world saw a bold American president travel into a country under powerful assault where no American forces were there to protect him. They saw a man well into the sunset of his life and career board a train to Kiev, ride 10 hours, and meet with the leader of that embattled country on a sunny day in a war-torn city. He stood there, aviator shades in place, beside President Vladimir Zelensky, as air raid sirens howled their fateful cry. Biden wasn't there to mouth platitudes or speak in the quiet tones of elliptical diplomacy. He was there to deliver the unmistakable message of American and European resolve. Biden put Vladimir Putin and his corrupt and doomed regime on notice that the same values, capabilities, and will that defeated the Soviet Union in the Cold War is now more present than ever. NATO is more unified than at any time since the early 1960s. The American resolve and capacity to unify an organization that Trump attempted to extort and routinely insulted have been made clear. 
Biden understood from the beginning that NATO is one of the most valuable adjuncts to American national security. Across generations, our work with this organization prevented any number of catastrophes in the bad old Soviet days. It's now ensuring that the corrupt Russian state can never expand to its old Soviet-era borders, denying Putin his life's ambition. Biden then went from Kiev to speak to the Baltic nations, firm American allies high on Putin's list of future victims. His resolve there was just as clear. While Trump wanted to make NATO Article 5 a cash-and-carry transactional proposition, a real American president this week stated in the firmest possible terms that the unshakable commitment of America to Article 5 ensures the safety and security of the Baltics and Eastern Europe. From Kiev, Biden took his message to Poland and delivered a speech reflecting the best traditions of American national security leadership. Not belligerent, not boastful, but determined, firm, and with a resounding commitment to the value and benefit of freedom. This is, of course, why Republicans are losing their damned minds. Vladimir Putin knows only one thing can save him in this war. It's not the Wagner Group's mercenary thug army. It's not Iranian drones, North Korean ammo stockpiles, or Chinese backing. It's not human wave attacks. It's not dragging World War II-era Soviet armor out of the depots, hitting it with a coat of Krylon and some WD-40 and sending it to the front. No, the only thing that will save Vladimir Putin now is his American fifth column. It's tempting to consider them clownish right-wing trolls, but the hard truth is they're overtly, proudly, vocally on the side of Russia, Putin, and his war against the Ukrainian people. Tucker Carlson, the Lord Haw of the Ukrainian war, is the loudest pro-Putin voice in conservative media, but is hardly alone. In Congress, Putin's handmaid, Marjorie Taylor Greene, bleats out that the world is engaged in a war on Russia. So frequently, it's like she's angling for an apartment in the Arbat and a pension from the FSB. As for Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and the cast of That's So Vlad in Congress, their treachery to the ideals of democracy and human freedom is damning. The list of Putin's sympathizers is longer and certainly growing. By now, they number at least a plurality in the House and a dangerous cohort in the Senate. Let's be clear what Putin's fifth column are and what they believe. They're not worried about federal spending on Ukraine. After all, most of them were here during the Trump era's financial blowout and never blinked an eye, but instead have a clear political objective. They won't admit it, so we should state it publicly again and again so the American people understand that the pro-Putin Republican faction has clear goals the defeat of Ukraine, the triumph of Putin, and the destruction of Western democracy. Anti-Ukraine is pro-Putin. Hard stop. There is no middle ground here. There is no compromise. There is no acceptable excuse, reason, or rationale to side with an autocratic dictator who runs a dangerous kleptocracy intent on expansion, repression, and invasion. The weakness and cowardice of the men and women who now spend their days eagerly cheerleading for Putin's victory and the slaughter of Ukrainians aren't trolling. They're not doing it for clickbait. They're not doing it to get hits on Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson's pro-Putin propaganda hours. Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon, and their ilk aren't just cheerleading for the Russian slaughter machine every day and night on their platforms for contrarian fun. They're doing it because they're on the other side. They're doing it because they don't believe in the West. They don't believe in democratic and pluralistic societies. They don't believe that Putin is evil and Russia's actions are dangerous. Instead, they run into the arms of the authoritarians. They're dictator curious at best. 
Just as Donald Trump's ugly authoritarianism aroused them during his era, and their current infatuation with Ron DeSantis provides the only way to get an erection, apparently, Putin's appeal also gets them hot. It's not a very heavy lift to imagine what Tucker Carlson's radio show on the Fox Radio Network would have sounded like in the late 1930s and early 1940s. That Mr. Hitler's not such a bad fellow after all. Those Jews could be very dangerous to Western values. Think I'm exaggerating? Think again. The Germans love nothing more than patsies like William Lord Haw Haw Joyce. Putin undoubtedly feels the same pleasure now that Hitler experienced watching people like Charles Lindbergh and Father Charles Coughlin make fools of themselves on his behalf as he prepared a war to burn Europe to the ground and launch a genocide of unimaginable ferocity. Contrast that with the supreme courage the Ukrainian people are showing the world. Under withering assault and brutal bombings, they get up every day and show the best and bravest of humanity. They fight on despite the odds they face, enduring savage attacks on their civilian population, on schools, churches, and hospitals. They face the war crimes committed by Russian soldiers on the orders of Putin and his military in places like Bucha. Putin's American allies are for this. This is what they favor. This is what they desire. This is what they crave. Violence, chaos, and death, all wrought at the hands of the authoritarian figure of Vladimir Putin. They've abandoned the American legacy of foreign policy where we protect our allies and interests from authoritarians. Don't let them tell you it's about anything else. I know, crazy, right? How could Tucker Carlson end up on the enemies list so often? Well, Tucker, you sniveling, shitbird, cockweasel, I've had enough. In any rational world, your act, your bullshit, your pro-Putin sycophancy, someone would have at your network said, you know what? We're not going to have a guy on our air who cheerleads for a guy who's committing war crimes and borderline genocide in Ukraine. We're not going to have a guy on the air who's leading an America first movement that is that is essentially the Russian-American bund. We're not going to have a guy on our air who every single night of the week goes out and speaks to millions and millions of people, a thunderstorm, a fucking hurricane of pro-Putin propaganda. You are now the spokesman for the Russian propaganda machine. Every night you go on screen and you are echoing their talking points word for word. There's a reason they call you their most valuable asset. There's a reason every night that this war has gone on, that Americans watching you haven't heard the message of Ukrainian bravery or the sacrifice of the Ukrainian people or the brutality of the Russian invasion. They've heard you say, why not? Why shouldn't I support Putin? Because I do. You support Vladimir Putin. I don't know how you get up in the morning except the paycheck is a good one and you love being famous, but you're on the enemies list, Tucker. And frankly, I'm supposed to tell people at the end of the enemies list to get their shit together. You never will. You are one of the worst human beings to walk on this planet. And if there's justice above, someday you're going to have to confront the fact that you were in service to Vladimir fucking Putin, one of the worst monsters of our time. This has been The Enemies List. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, 
a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad, along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious and more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt um, your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.